Welcome back to another episode of Running the Race Podcast, a pastoral perspective on living the Christian life in our day. To find out more about First Baptist Church of Gonzales or for more episodes, head over to our website, fbcg.net slash rtr. Recent episodes have focused on different aspects of the Black Lives Matter organization and ideology. In this final installment, we'll be discussing racism. Our speakers today are Dr. Jim Law, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Gonzales, and our Minister to Students, Alex Ray. Welcome to Running the Race. I'm Jim Law, here with Alex Ray. And Running the Race is a podcast which flows from the ministry of First Baptist Church Gonzales and was launched in an effort to be able to have a conversation about social, cultural, doctrinal issues for the purpose of growing disciples of Jesus Christ. And so in the first three podcasts, Alex, we've we focused on the Black Lives Matter organization and have gone directly to their purpose statement, which is troubling on many fronts to us. Um, and in going through that purpose statement, we addressed in our first um, podcast uh, the, the attack on the nuclear family where they they stated that they're committed to disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure, which puts it at odds with um, um, what we find in scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, their full embrace of the sexual revolution with detailed language promoting and affirming, affirming uh, LGBTQ plus agenda. And then last time, Alex, we looked at uh, the Marxist orientation of BLM, uh, seen primarily in the grievance mindset, uh, which they in which they see everything, and we mean everything, uh, reduced to an oppressor, uh, oppressed mm-hmm. versus oppressed mindset. And what makes them unique, I think, uh, is uh, what many are calling a neo-Marxism, where they crank up the heat and uh, they incorporate biological sex, race. Uh, and a panorama, really, of various uh, identity badges. So our contention has been to state clearly that BLM is not what you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it is an organization uh, that is, has a deep agenda of revolution, and it's not about what you th- think the name states. And so I, I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be clear, as we have in, in talking in this subject, that... Um, we're called to love all black lives, mm-hmm. and all lives for that matter, uh, as every human being is created in the image of God and fearfully and wonderfully made. And so to affirm that, we can still oppose the ideology of BLM, which is what we're wanting to do respectfully and, and with conviction. So in our final assessment of Black Lives Matter, the organization, uh, we're going to discuss uh, the, the whole concept or topic of racism, which is a daunting task in light of uh, our country's experience um, with it and just as human history uh, is filled with um, um, racism in, as a part of the human story. So this is a, a difficult uh, topic. So what exactly are we talking about, Alex? You've done a lot of reading in this, and I'm really grateful for what you're going to bring to the table today. What, what are we talking about? Yes, I think it's important to, when we discuss this, to know what we're not talking about. And, there's, um, and so there's a difference between the what I would maybe call the traditional uh, understanding or maybe the, the common understanding of racism and what's 
often being purported as racism today. And so we're going to mostly be talking about the first one, I think, in our conversation today, but we do need to briefly at least address um, the second one. And so um, there are some really um, heavy hitter thinkers in this area today. Uh, Robin D'Angelo, who had a book called White Fragility that yeah. she wrote a couple years ago, that's really um, taken the world by storm. Um, she uh, it being um, paid a large sum of money to do diversity training uh, at college universities and corporations. It came out in 2018, but it really kind of um, blew up this past year. And then the other main thinker in this, and there's other one, of course, but the two main would be Robin D'Angelo and then Ibram X. Kendi. He wrote a book called, among other ones, but his most recent one, I think it is, it's called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And so uh, D'Angelo, um, who herself is white, uh, she says this. She says, racism comes out of our pores as white people. It's the way that we are. And so for, for thinkers like D'Angelo and others, um, racism is embedded in the white person. That to be white is to be racist. Um, and so it's not necessarily an act of looking at somebody as an inferior race who's a different color than you, but by virtue of you being white, you are racist. And so that's a very different understanding than what, than what, um, what you and I might think of it. Matter of fact, she said that. She said flat out, white, and I quote here, white, white identity is inherently racist. White people do not exist outside the system of white supremacy. And so it's a very different, again, it's a very different understanding of racism. Uh, uh, Kendi, uh, for his part, um, talks about um, uh, this idea of racial inequality a lot. He said that um, racial inequalities are pervasive and persistent in every sector of society. That's not me saying that, that's him saying that. And uh, he looks at any sort of dis dis uh, disparity between um, two racial groups as a racial disparity, that there's that one racial group being preferred over another. And so it's very easy for us when we think about these, think about these ideas, it, at least for me, my initial reaction was, these are outliers. Mm -hmm. Like surely people don't really think this yeah. way. I mean, this is, very, this is a very radical view of racism. Um, but for whatever it's worth, uh, Jack Dorsey, the, the CEO uh, of Twitter, he Twitter, recently, yeah. very recently donated $10 million to um, Boston University's uh, Center for Anti-Racist Research. That's, that's a project led by uh, Kendi. And one of Kendi's proposals uh, is actually to amend the American uh, Constitution that would form a department that would, that would, in essence, monitor public and private racism. And, and people can look that up online. It's a very radical proposal. And so all that to say that in this view of racism, everything is reduced to power dynamics. And this is very much related to what we talked about in the last episode, where everything is reduced to power dynamics. And so in this view of racism, everything is looked at that way. And it's a very distorted view of racism. And, and what's been interesting, I don't know if you've maybe seen some of these, but it's really showing up in a number of different avenues. It's not just one racial group on another or, or in the, the normal understanding of racism. I've seen, like, so for example, the New York Times, which is no small fish. Uh, they came yeah. out with an article since this past May. The headline of this was, jogging had always excluded black people. That's their headline. One of the top newspapers in the country, um, perhaps in the world, really. And so it's, it's another, it's, it's, this lens is really being everything is seen through this lens. I saw another article from another publication that said that Dr. Seuss books are racist. 
um, even in public school systems, like in Seattle, they, they recently re- uh, there was a proposal to transform math in the public school system, where to ask questions like, where does power and oppression show up in our math experience? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, that's a direct quote. And then another one is, how is math manipulated to allow inequality and oppression to persist? So it's not just two plus two equals four. It's not just what are your prime numbers, what are all the other stuff that I forgot about math over the years. It, it's it's in a very agenda-driven mindset. And, and you know, I think uh, embraced at the uh, at the highest level, evidenced by interestingly enough the honorariums uh, that D'Angelo mm-hmm. and others, uh, just these uh, incredible investments by corporations and institutions. Yeah, I think it was uh, University of Connecticut, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was a $20,000 $20, speaking fee to come and, and speak for just a couple hours, and then that's not to mention all the, the other costs and expenses, such as travel arrangements and food and whatnot. But um, it, there's a lot of investment. So the uh, cultural in elites in that way are grabbing onto these things to, to, to put them into institution and, pub, and to try to – really, it is a revolution is what we've uh, – I, I think you're right, yeah. I think you're right. And so that, that's, that's what we're not talking about. So we briefly address that. That, that. When we talk about racism for the next couple of minutes, I want to make it clear here that that's not the kind of racism that we're talking about. We're looking at a more, um, I would say, a common, maybe even a common sense, perhaps, uh, for, uh, understanding of racism that maybe we, we grew up with. And so what, how, how would you, with that idea in mind, how would you define racism? Yeah, that is... Um you know, just uh, looking at the common um, understanding um, and definitions, uh, it's a belief that groups of, of, of humans possess different behavioral traits corresponding to physical appearance mm-hmm. and can be divided uh, based on the superiority of one race over another. Right. So it's one, it's one racial group looking at another one saying, you look different than me, mm-hmm. therefore you're inferior. Right. I I think uh, the Presbyterian Church of America, PCA, really offered a definition that, that was helpful in, uh, to me, in that racism is an explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over, over mm-hmm. another, another race. And so uh, we see that uh, in the 20th century prominently through major movements. Uh, it's been uh, really interesting to watch Planned Parenthood Squirm in recent days over mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger and her overt um, race racist views and, yep. and, and eugenics as well that tied into that. Yes, right. And uh, Adolf Hitler uh, with mm-hmm. the whole Aryan race. Um, in our own history, the the tragedy of slavery and mm-hmm. how that um, bred the Jim Crow laws and um, the racist uh, mindset that um, is a part of our history. Mm-hmm. Uh, sadly, so so. Uh, but the term the term race has really not served our the human family well. Um, and what we're wanting to do in the course of this conversation is really to look at this uh, from the biblical lens and to make the argument that we're really just one race, the human race. Mm-hmm. And uh, Vodi Bauckham has uh, offered a lot of uh, has been a helpful voice on the subject of race. His message on racial reconciliation is a tremendous uh, help, I think, as he deals with Ephesians two. And uh, Bauckham says that um, race is actually a, a social construct, and we're all familiar with it because anytime we have to fill out a form, basically asking, mm-hmm. you know, what race are you? Uh, that's 
that's a common understanding. We we know what that means, but often um, has not been helpful with regard to uh, the unity of the planet. So race is a is a, a social construct. The concept of race is not a biblical concept, and it's not a biblical idea. It's a constructed idea, and so. Uh, you will see race. Uh, you will not see race in the scripture unless you see it in Adam, and that we all uh, are one in Adam, and come from one blood. Acts seventeen twenty six. He made you from one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the face of the earth. Uh, so I think that's um, that, that's really important, and and that there is less than. Uh, a 0.2 genetic difference between any one of us, uh, regardless of um, in the in the human um, realm, mm-hmm. uh, genetically. So we're not even you know we're not even different colors. Uh, Bachum mm-hmm. argues, uh, technically from a genetic perspective, but the melanin in our skin is just um, uh, the determining factor of that, and so. Um, you know, going back to the issue of racism and where we are now, um, I just feel like over the last 50 years, um, there with the civil rights level legislation, at least there, to begin the the mark of um, an even playing field moving forward under the law anyway, but often culture drags stubbornly behind that. Um, even in our own Baptist family, uh, there are a number of resolutions on record in our our statement of faith, Alex, uh, that in the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism. Right. This idea of the superiority of one over the other. Um, for me, it's been interesting in this pandemic, um, and the the racial tensions that have just filled the the news cycles. How so? Uh, well, I mean, just uh, being able to connect with uh, a, a black friends. Black pastors, and one conversation I had um, a couple months ago with a with a dear brother um, in this area, it's just reflecting, um, you know, growing up in the '60s and '70s, and um, you know, he was he shared with me you know, just that feeling of being left behind, mm-hmm. um, even though the laws were changed um, with the integration of schools, the desegregation uh, plan. Um, that most white people just moved, right? And they were stuck in schools with textbooks where pages were missing, teachers who were not qualified to teach, and um, that among many other things. And um, uh, in my own experience, having to be bused across town in the third grade, right? You know, to a black community. My third grade teacher was a, a black teacher. Um. Had with it, you know, exposures that I think were were helpful, um, but um, at the same time, uh, just of continuing to see this issue surface again and again. Right. Yeah, and so I think that's in, that that really takes us to when we think about how this plays out in the in, the, in our current day. Uh, there's another distinction that we want to make as well, where um, we live in a, a very large country. There's a lot of um, we are. We believe as Christians that we are um, sinful people. Um, so there are certainly racist a lot. That there, there are people who are racist today. But there, that's a, there's a difference between saying that and saying um, that the country as a whole is intrinsically 
racist, that the system itself is is intrinsically racist, that it seeps out of its pores, to use uh, D'Angelo's uh, language there. And so I, I, I'm reminded, I was thinking about this the other day, how a couple years ago I preached on Matthew 6, and um, the later part of um, Matthew 6, Jesus talks about how we can't serve two masters. And depending on what translation you use, uh, the word used there is slave. And so this wasn't a main point of the um, of the passage that I was preaching on, but I did want to take at least a moment to specify that when you— could if you if you were using um, translation that used the word slave there, it might be very easy to think about colonial slavery. What we what we think of as slavery in, here in the South. So I wanted to quickly and yes, briefly um, say how. Uh, this is what I did in the sermon. How th- that's not the slavery that it had in mind. That's not the kind of slavery that Jesus was talking about. What we're used to in the in the South, uh, but. Uh, instead, in the Middle East in that time, this, this idea of slavery was uh, along, more along the line of indentured servitude. So if I owe you, uh, Jim, you know, a lot of money and I can't pay you back, um, I would then work for you to, to work that off. And so that's, that's – and there's some more nuances there to be sure, but that's, that's by and large um, what's being referred to there. And so what was interesting what I, I preached the sermon and I walked – um, down the aisle afterwards, and I had a man approach me who I'd never met before, um, wasn't a member of the church, but he came up and said, hey, I need to talk to you about that passage. And we did, and he basically took um, the next 10 minutes or so to justify racial slavery. And he talked about how Abraham Lincoln wasn't a good man, and uh, and, I, and I think, I think, this is a little bit conjecture, I think he had some sort of slave owner, like slave owner in his, in his family's history, and he was basically trying to justify what they did. Yeah. And it was awful. It was, terrible. it was a very uncomfortable conversation. And it was very sad to see that of a 40-minute, 35, 40-minute sermon that I preached on, this would have took a couple snippet snippet of it. That's what he hung up on. Um, what He stayed on that, was that he was he was so fixated on this. And it was very sad to see. And and, um, and so, yeah, it was, there's obviously some sort of um, racism going on today. Uh, I don't know if you've read uh, Jamar Tisby's book uh, called The, the Color of Compromise. It mm. uh, came out a couple of years ago, but he talks about how um, just even a cursory look at American history, especially with, with churches, there there are clear evidence of um, racism in, in these churches. Um, and also in, in, uh, when it comes to some of like the Supreme Court, think about Judge Scott, for example. Um, and he talks about that. And then you mentioned as well uh, Planned Parenthood. What, what I find interesting about the Planned Parenthood situation now is that for years, for years it seems like a lot of those in the pro-life movement have been saying Sanger was a racist. Sanger was a racist. She was clearly a racist. She, mm. she would uh, really much, she was very involved with the eugenics movement. And a lot of people on the, the pro-abortion side said, no, you're just misreading her, you're misinterpreting her, that's not what she meant at all. And then now there are, there are movements by those who support abortion to get her name removed from buildings because they're like, yeah, yeah, matter of fact, she is a racist. Um, and so it's interesting to see that, that kind of shift um, and mentality yeah. there. You know, I think as we look at our present situation, here we are 50-plus years after the civil rights legislation and the impact of Martin Luther King Jr. Um, in 2008, uh, many hoped that the election of, um, of Barack Obama uh, would finally bridge the racial divide. Mm-hmm. And today uh, we're left wondering really why racial tensions actually arguably this year if you just watch the news cycles with many would say it's probably the worst we've ever seen right 
You know? I wonder how much of I wonder how much the prevalence of social media has maybe oh, exacerbated yeah. that a little bit. Right, and and so um, I I go back to another conversation that I've had uh, during this pandemic, um, Alex, with um, with a friend that I went to college with. I, mm-hmm. I referenced him uh, in an earlier uh, podcast. And um, you know, just seeing uh, things differently uh, on the uh, the cultural front than than I do. We we had a wonderful conversation, and um, I think it it ended in this way that he he explained he explained to me you know just how he's experienced racism as a as a black man in America, and um, just caught up in in the corporate. Um, uh, structure a pocket of a corporate life mm-hmm. where the boss and the co-workers uh, were writing emails about him in derogatory ways mm-hmm. uh, his pathway uh, to you know to promotion was um, limited by by these prejudices and you know we would say I think our our response our position would be that that we need to speak out against that and that's that's basically what the takeaway was for me that right. as, as Christians, that's clearly wrong, and to participate in that kind of communication or beha- behavior is a sinful behavior. Absolutely, and that um, uh, that when we see that, we should speak out uh, against it. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the the failure of the church in the in the civil rights era mm-hmm. uh, to not speak out against the hatred and the the fomenting. Um, uh, you know, uh, attitudes, the turmoil is, um, is something that should really challenge us today. Yeah. And we're not to be silent. Yeah. And, and, and think about the history of the Southern Baptist Convention as a whole. I mean, think about the, the, yes. the, the institution of the SBC, where that comes from in, in, in that, yeah. in the middle of that conversation. And so, right. um, that's something we certainly need to, be, need to be aware of, acknowledge of, acknowledge, excuse me. And then, um, seek again, like you said, speak out. So it really seems to me to be to you have the tale of two na- uh, you know of, of a nation mm-hmm. two two pathways of a nation. Um, we see it as systemically rotten from root to stem, and you cut the whole thing down, and it needs to burn to the ground. Mm-hmm. Or you see that that um, legally we're we're one under the law, and that we should promote. Yes, we look at our 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 history. And um, and there is there is sin there, and, and no question about it. But that that we should pursue together, you know, the ideals uh, that that are expressed in our documents of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. And that often some of the um, efforts for social justice are, are are not accomplishing that. You know, reparations would be a huge conversation to have. Mm-hmm. But my fear with that conversation is I've never seen a metric that provides um, an equitable um, resolve. Right. And so an effort to produce justice on one hand, one hand is met with injustice on another as you're impacting people who, um, who are not to blame for, for what they're being charged for. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so let, let's come to a gospel centrality, Alex. As we come to the close of this, how, how should we respond? Yeah, so I think kind of like maybe the the first part, is the first thing to say is what not to do. And uh, I was um, I was talking with a, a friend of ours, uh, Marcus, recently, and yeah. he he introduced. Uh, he, I, I didn't know about this, but he mentioned how um, early early eighteen hundreds there was a thing called the slave Bible, mm. and what that was, it, it was. Um, 
it was this, this I, I had to say to even call it a Bible because it was missing so much of our Bible, but it, it was published to, quote, teach slaves how to read and then ultimately to convert them uh, to Christianity. But when you look at what they actually had, it, um, it had just 12% of the Old Testament and uh, only 10% of the New Testament. And so when you look at what exactly was missing, there's some charts you can look at online, uh, it intentionally leaves out the vast majority of the book of Exodus, uh, especially the rescue of the Jewish slaves. And so um, they didn't want any kind of any kind of message of uh, rescue to be shared um, with the uh, the slaves in the 1800s. And also, too, uh, uh, interestingly enough, uh, sadly uh, enough, it, that it leaves out the Book of Revelation. So there's no message of hope there either. And so it's just a couple of, uh, just a couple uh, passages here and there, very small amount. So that that's a good thing of what not to do. Like we, that's something that we that that we also have to reckon with, with our history, where we've seen... Um, the Bible weaponized. It's exactly, exactly what that is. You know, to promote racist ideas. That's and, exactly what that is. And, and another example of that would be um, uh, the curse of Ham in uh, Genesis chapter 9. And so what that was is uh, Noah, um, after uh, they get out, they get off the ark, Noah uh, gets drunk, he falls asleep, uh, he had a couple of sons, uh, Ham is one of the sons, he sees... Um, he sees uh, Noah uh, asleep and uh, naked. And so we're not exactly sure the specifics. It's kind of hard to figure out. But, but basically, he does something wrong here. That The other brother come and cover up Noah, but Ham does something wrong here. Um, and so when Noah wakes up, he blesses the other two sons, but then he curses Canaan, who's Ham's son. That's in the later part of chapter 9. And so this idea of the curse of, of Ham was uh, black skin. And so when you look at this passage, how it's been used to, to weaponize, a good word to use there, uh, Alexander Stevens, who was the vice president of the, of the Confederacy uh, before the Civil War, he, in his, uh, his infamous uh, cornerstone speech, uh, he actually alludes to this passage, the, this idea of the curse of Ham as justifying slavery, and which goes wildly against, uh, like even Exodus chapter 21, where, uh, verse 16, which explicitly condemns slavery as we understand it. And then, of course, another one that's being weaponized, you have uh, oh, this idea of misunderstanding of, of Scripture and slavery. One question we might hear from time to time is that the um, that all this Old Testament violence against other nations in the Old Testament is clearly an example of race-based uh, yeah. violence. But very briefly, I would say um, that and, uh, Paul Copan, who, um, who the Christian apologist out of Florida, had uh, done a lot of great work on this. But basically, um, th- this wasn't a race-based form of discrimination, but rather it was an act of judgment against an incredibly wicked nation. And when you look at, um, God actually waited for 400 years um, before taking any kind of action. And so th- those are um, some examples of what not to, how not to respond using scripture. And so with that, with that idea in mind, maybe we can end on a note of how should we respond then? If we know what, how not to respond, how should we respond then? Yeah, I think, um, you know, just looking at the struggle of racism as it seeks to find resolve through organizations and education and prominent personalities and government programs, um, uh, that's going to always leave us short. The, the, de- the definitive source of hope with, with racism or any other human problem is the good news of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm, right. So we always want to end there. Uh, you know, to, uh, Samuel Say, I've mentioned him on a, a previous broad, uh, broadcast. He, he said, any hatred of our skin color is hatred of our designer. Right. 
And so just looking at the New Testament, as you see God bringing um, people together under the banner of the cross, my favorite's Acts 11, when Barnabas went into the church at Antioch, it says in verse 23, when Barnabas came and he saw the grace of God, I think that's an interesting way to express, um, uh, you know, walking into a church, he saw the grace of God. How did he see it? Well, he saw Jew and Gentile at the same table. That's, right. that's why. And right. uh, that is the unifying power of the gospel. And at the uh, it is the end game. Um, as we look at Revelation 7, that God is gathering a people for his name from every tr- uh, tongue and tribe and kindred and land uh, before the throne. And so um, I just, uh, you know, when we face racism and the troubling, gnawing, nagging um, expressions of racism in this world, it's just another reminder of our need for the redemption of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, Shai Lin you shared with me, Alex, uh, you know, his statement recently, the gospel is powerful enough to heal the infinite division between a holy God and a sinful humanity. So I have to believe that it's powerful enough to heal the ethnic division between black, white, and beyond. That truth keeps me going. Otherwise, I would have to give, I would have given up long ago. Right. And so we press on in his mighty name that God would... Uh, as we hold forth the gospel as our unifying power, that he would be gathering a people, which he has pledged to do. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Running the Race podcast. We hope you'll join us again in a couple weeks for our next discussion. And don't forget to share the podcast with a friend you think might find it helpful. Until then, you can visit www.fbcg.net for more information about our church and ministry. And again, thanks, God bless, and goodbye for now.